Are you attending Shop Talk? If you are, I hope that you're ready for the AI-driven future of commerce. If not, you can get ready by joining us and our friends from IM Digital, a leading retail experience agency, to learn about the future of commerce. You can join their March 18th event taking place at Shop Talk exclusively with your invite from Future Commerce. Find out more today at events.imdigital.com. Today on Visions. I think the retailers maybe and the brands should do should be listening more. I mean, some of the comments that have been made so far, I also feel like we should say, well, why don't the retailers just ask? You know, what are you here for? Do you want to be in and out? Do you, do you want a really curated, handheld experience? I think sometimes re, um, consumers might be, customers might be um, happy to volunteer what they're here for. Sometimes they'll go, you should know. <laughs> Welcome to Visions. Visions is an annual audiovisual trends report that covers the changes in culture and commerce. This series is meant to be a companion guide to our 100-page report. Download and follow along at visions.report. Episode 5, The Role of Commerce in Society. Hi, I'm Philip. It has been said that capitalism has a solve for everything, and none more so than the systemic challenges, societal disparities, and ecological disasters that we are currently all faced with. Can brands truly change the world? Or are there nuances in the behavior of consumers, people, that make ESG, or environmental, social, and governance programs inside of corporations, harder to deliver on the promise than was previously thought. Today, we go live to the Vision Summit in West Palm Beach, Florida, with commerce, brand, and retail leaders to talk about what the role of commerce is in a society and what good we can do in the world. Just a note of warning, Mike Lackman's audio had some issues during our recording session. We've done our best to recover it. Now, there has been a lot of discussion over the last 10 years, and a lot of capital has gone to support mission-driven brands, uh, to put that capital to work in a way that is a net benefit. Uh, some of that is very outward-focused, and some of that is a, a, a little more subtle. Um, but we do all have to engage in commerce. So I really believe it can be a change agent. Is that, the question I'd pose to the panel here is that, do, do we feel like that concept uh, is one, top of mind or present or even uh, tangible as a, a perceived value for a consumer, is that I'm doing good in the world by engaging in commerce? And then maybe two, why or why not? And maybe give some supporting examples. Author and retail analyst, Maya Knights. As consumers, we are so much more conscious of our commercial choices. We're bringing that pressure to bear on the brands and retailers we, we, we shop with, that we spend our money with. Um, I think we've said in other discussions today that, you know, the consumer can vote with their dollar. 
but they're also now with social media and user-generated content, they can quite easily let brands know when brands have failed in their promise to deliver or are failing from a socioeconomic perspective or on sustainability um, grounds. It's a bit of a minefield in in terms of being a brand or a retailer in that sense nowadays. I'm also seeing from a a corporate standpoint, um, brands are being asked to become more political entities. So the whole ESG um, uh, trend, I think I've always thought that the bigger a business becomes, the more corporate social responsibility they have as an entity in the society that they that they operate in. I think we're seeing a lot of different trends um, converge in that sense. I often talk about sustainability as not just being good for the planet, but it's good for the business because you're doing more with less or you're doing the same with less and you're wasting less. Mm. Um, So, you know, being a retailer or a brand, there are a number of different um, pressures that I think they have to um, address. But in doing so, it'll only make them stronger companies. It'll only make consumers want to shop with them more. Um, and I think that's got to be a good thing. It, it's, it's difficult. It's added another layer of complexity to being just, you know, I'm a merchant. All I do is buy and sell stuff. No, not anymore. Not anymore. You can't say that anymore. Well, I think that there's a lot of double standards that consumers have. Head of Retail Marketplace Strategy at Acadia, Kiri Masters. During the pandemic, like we didn't have any choice but to eat out of styrofoam containers and use lots of gloves and wipes and, you know, everything was disposable. People put their sort of uh, sustainability value to the side in favour of a a higher value of self-preservation. And I also see this same sort of... um, uh, difference in behaviour between with Amazon, and so some people have an aversion to Amazon because it's so big. Because you know, there's a narrative out there about it putting other businesses out of business. But ultimately, convenience wins a lot of the time. And so I think that that we can we people will say that they care about sustainability and and those sort of values, but how it actually plays out with how dollars are spent, I'm less convinced of that. I think it's difficult to put an umbrella over all of it because you have to take into consideration, for example, like generational differences. Web3 Venture Firm Chief Brand Officer Michael Miraflor. The environment is the number one through three most important thing for Gen Z on nearly every survey uh, that I look at. Um, Yet Gen Z is fueling the rise of Shein and continuing, Mm -hmm. you know, the cycle of uh, fast fashion at the same time that they're also exploring um, resale and vintage and all those things, but uh, predominantly it is to you know support you know the the, the most accessible fast fashion um, and and that contradiction is something that you know is understandable because of the lack of um, of buying power, but at the same time you have to think about you know for a brand that is not predicated on or whose value prop is not cheap trendy goods fast, how do you compete with that, right? Do you compromise your business model to keep up or do you hold fast in your conviction that you can be a more sustainable company um, and defend your market share against something that is so aggressive and that just plays the reality of uh, a generation who just might not get there for another decade to be able to buy higher priced, more sustainable goods? So it's, it's sort of like a, a moving target, but um, it's easier to, to, to say than do. And uh, you know, to earlier points made, I think... Um, there's a, a higher demand for, for transparency. And, you know, consumers, you know, given the extra time on their hands, will look for evidence of 
statements made otherwise, right? I think people are tired of just hearing it. They want to see it. They want to see it in product. They want to see it in policy. We actually act in a bunch of behavioral modes that are contradictory to your point. Like, so is it a futile attempt for, to move a consumer out of one behavioral mode and try to train them to act in another behavioral mode with regard to your brand by, by adopting a sustainability message? Is that really something that we can even enforce as a psychological behavior upon a consumer and to say, I'm going to move you from one cohort to the next? Maybe they just don't see your brand that way and they never will. And ultimately, does that mean like we're kind of defeatist in our efforts to try to use commerce to change and affect the world in some positive way? Well, I think there's a positive element of spending that has, I guess, sustainability from a different perspective, which is just job creation. Brand and omni-channel strategist Grace Clark. And beyond the idea of your purchases being sustainable or not, um, in terms of how the company produces things, there is an idea that shopping is a very general statement here, but this is how it shows up on social media, particularly with younger consumers. Shopping is good for the economy um, because people will share stories about what it was like growing up. And if there wasn't an industry or a place to spend money, they wouldn't have had a job to save money and move away from home or send money back to their families. So there is an element that's a bit less defined or spoken about that sustainable purchases can be helpful for the economy. And just by virtue of participating in the economy, um, you are creating employment opportunities for certain people, which is taking a really extreme example, but that is an element of spending driving change. Change can be empowerment and employment and moving around in the world. Mm. Not often the lens that we put on ESG, right? Environmental, no. social good. Social good is actually having equor- uh, economic upward mobility and giving people upward mobility in life. I think it does come down to meaningful employment. They see their employ their workforce, to Grace's point, as disposable or transient anyway. Mm. So can we affect can we change that? Because it looks like it's not gonna ever change. It's more automation, it's more technology to displace workers, it's more algorithms to make decisions. And that is that a is is that a losing battle? I think maybe we would, I would have agreed with you had we not just come through a pandemic. But um, I know a lot of retailers who are really suffering in terms of being able to just hire people. Um, And so I think every retailer is thinking about how can I become an employer of choice and whether that's flexible shift bidding, flexible payroll systems, more training and career advancement, supply needing to meet the demand. Mm. I think retailers are being pushed in that direction, even if they didn't really care about it beforehand. feels like a very Western-centric point of view. I I know your uh, roasters work with a lot of growers that are all over the world. Mike, um, what's your perspective on some of this? Is this just the sort of tip of the Maslow's that we all concern ourselves with when we're all taken care of in the other areas? Mike Lackman, CEO of Trade Coffee. We're really excited at the opportunities to more effectively transmit data and capital from consumers who are learning about a higher quality product for the first time to the roasters and the growers that they work with and celebrate those wins that we find. So when we do have an example of somebody who brings us an experimental coffee from a woman on the farm in Kenya, we sell 80 pounds of that to validate 
And then just last month, we actually got to a full container of that particular product. Like those are really exciting things to see. And I think it's important that we don't get out over our skis. You know, when we got our packaging to be 100% backyard compostable brown matter, like there, it was a good economic proposition for us, something we can claim. We have to be very deliberate about how much we try to make that. Is that you know the head or the deck? Is that the <laughs> deck two or the deck three? I think all things in moderation. And I, again, I caveat that by saying it's a pretty parochial view of it, given the way we think about it within our business. I don't know that that's necessarily transferable to every business and every one of those same circumstances. Certainly incremental steps. I, I think that that's like being smart, being thoughtful, being careful about how you go about making those differences. Um, and, and making sure that, the, that the, the business or the customers are pulling that through. <laughs> like I think if you look at it like a tax as a business, and you're like, oh, let's get the ticket punched and do this thing, and then we can say we did that, and we put it in the About Us page and move on and go back to the stuff we're doing. I think that's going to be somewhat unsustainable. Yeah. I think if you can find ways for either the economic model or the customers to demand that you pull more of that through what you're doing, just running your business every day will start pulling more of that through somewhat more organically, and it won't be such a tension of, like, should we make this a part of what we're doing? Mm-hmm. It'll kind of just be what you're doing. And I think there's limited conversation, or at least less specific conversation, around what that actually means. It's really easy to talk in generalities about being sustainable or being, like you said, an employer of choice. But if someone were to ask me, what is compelling? What is it to be an employer of choice? How can you attract great talent and then make a great experience when they're there at any level? That's something that even I would have to sit down with a pen and paper and make a list on for the first time, because I don't think... My hunch is it doesn't look like necessarily being flexible in or out of the office. It might look like a different structure of benefits or a different structure of investment in the business or different ways of compensation. What Or further down the line, 20 years, 30 years, who knows? I'm projecting fractional employment and the ability to support multiple businesses. And I don't mean as a consult, what a consultant looks like now, which is almost doing it without anyone's permission. I mean, a business actually creating a different structure where employees are more fractional, working in more fractionalized ways, or the roles are more collaborative. I'm interested in that part of a business being able to recreate what actual work looks like. The idea that a brand is a force for good in the world is a relatively new one. It has been said that companies like Starbucks and Apple haven't just become commonplace in our everyday lives. They're practically non-playable characters, or NPCs, that populate our worlds to make them feel full and vibrant. They push us along on our main quest as the main character in our own story. In 2020, Starbucks popularized the phrase social distancing via social media and in emails long before the CDC enforced COVID guidelines. This signaled an era of corporate influence and corporate governance that is in many ways more powerful and more influential than the role that government plays in our everyday lives. Starbucks is leading people. But what gives them such license? Since 2010 in the United States, we've seen a shift in the role of corporations in everyday life. Businesses are bigger than ever. A trillion dollar corporation was unthinkable just 10 years ago. Today, there are three, and the time to trillion is collapsing. It took Apple nearly 40 years to become a trillion dollar company and crossed the $1 trillion market cap in August of 2018. Two and a half years later, in August of 2020, it earned its second trillion. 
but just 16 months later, it clocked its third. When we think of the role that commerce plays in our society, we're not just giving corporations more control and more capital. We're also demanding that they exert their influence in the world. In many ways, that doesn't make them NPCs. It makes us wonder, are brands the main character, and are we the NPCs? We'll be right back after a word from our partners. This podcast is brought to you by Shopware. Shopware is an e-commerce hub that allows you to offer relevant, compelling experiences for your consumers and your back office team. The open source core and the open commerce approach allows brands to build however they want, turnkey, headless, PWA, or any combination thereof, thanks to the all sales channels welcome approach. Shopware creates the most engaging experiences imaginable, from B2B and B2C to multi-store and guided shopping. And Shopware features a worldwide ecosystem of developers, agencies, and technology partners. Find out more at shopware.com FC. That's shopware.com FC. The other side of our study here is that plurality of identity means a lot of things. It also means fractional employment. You, you people don't really just hold one you know stream of income. When you get to you know the upper bounds of middle class, you have to diversify your portfolio of income to to reach beyond some sort of a glass ceiling and class barrier. And we've all dealt with it at various stages in all of our career. Uh, I think that you know our study finds too, people are considered to be more successful. When they have more extracurriculars, we're busier than ever. And you know, when you look at a high-powered CEO or you look at somebody even moving into college, colleges are more selective based on what? The number of things that you're doing outside of your schooling. And so that itself, to me, feels unsustainable. And that we're, we're going to become more uh, uh, encumbered to have to fill many roles psychologically and, and, and societally for us to be able to have just some sort of like sustainable, uh, uh, meaningful work. And, uh, and I don't know, and I say that as a person who, you know, is living that out too. I think you know, there's evidence of that <clears throat> in social media where you know, I was told once um, that young people, they don't mind having a bunch of different profiles, a bunch of different um, uh, accounts. Like they might have three accounts, one that they connect for their parents and their family, one for friends and one for work. And, and I just thought to myself, hmm, when you're young and you have time to maintain all those facets, different personalities, that's great. But the minute you get older and you have something to lose, I think uh, the kind of issues that you're talking about really come, come to the fore. Um, but I think for me, the answer has to be um, transparency to Michael's point, you know, making sure that as an empl- becoming an employer of choice, becoming a, a, a brand or a retailer of choice, you're being absolutely clear on why you're doing what you're doing, why the products are the way they are. Great example um, I heard of was um, offering consumers the option to Kiri's point about convenience, because we are so busy. Maybe because we're so busy, we're so wedded to convenience, we don't have the room or the space to have to make slow choices. But this survey that I saw um, 
vast majority of consumers said they would take the option of slow delivery if it was offered to them. And what does that mean? Again, to be transparent, you say, I'll get you this delivery in three to five days. It will offset X amount of carbon credits. Or, And if someone chooses to make that, you know, to, to, to go for that, they, they're fully informed. They, they understand that there's a, they're forsaking the convenience of something better, but you give them that choice. I think retailers are going to have, going to have to be a lot more um, transparent and a lot more in the same way that they've had to cope with the diversification of channels, the complexity of just selling. In terms of transparency and choice when it comes to sustainability, particularly around fulfillment, they're going to have to offer a lot more choice than they currently do. So I think it's choice and transparency for me, absolutely key, to give us the option to not not always go for convenience, to give us the option to not have to do so many things, keep so many plates spinning all the time. I think we've... I'm not sure it's so new. I mean, going back um, through recent history, we've got, you know, the role that you have as a parent. We've got the role that you might have in a religious, you know, setting. And so how is it different now is my question because we hobbies, um, family pursuits, those are those all require different sort of parts of our personality and things that we're willing to to share. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm a different person on LinkedIn where I only talk about work stuff than I am on Instagram where it's just family stuff, for example. But I'm not sure that's so different to I'm not sure that's so new. I think what's new is that we're expecting retailers and brands to know that. So if I come to you, I don't know, if I go to a hardware store, I'm on a mission. If I go into a fashion store, I'm maybe just killing time and want some fun. I want an an immersive experiential store experience. Whereas, you know, if I'm going into a hardware store, help me find that four-inch screw really, really quickly. So, you know, in one sense, I don't know, um, in one setting, augmented reality might be really, really useful from a utilitarian perspective, like point me at the four-inch screws, but on the other hand, it might be really, really useful for providing an immersive experience if I'm going into a fashion store. Like the Burberry store mm. in China, for example, is a great one. Um, I don't know. Does that, make, does that kind of make sense? I, that, that retailers want us, um, sorry, consumers want us to uh, inf- get, uh, understand what we're inferring in, ter- in terms of our mission, whether it's a convenience mission or a, a luxury mission where we have more time and tailor that experience. Brian Ling, co-founder at Future Commerce. Actually, that's a very good question. So the, we talked about sort of the um, dissonance in consumers' expectations. They want Amazon, you know, one-click buy, one-day delivery, as convenient as possible. On the other hand, they're, you know, also... Uh, want to not buy from Amazon because they feel like it's having a bad environmental impact. Um, the, I think the question then is, should brands and retailers try to address that and be all things to all people or to hit all expectations of a single consumer, which I think is what you're getting at. They expect us as brands and retailers to know uh, the you know, what it is that they're looking for. (laughs) Um, Should we be addressing, you know, one part of the equation or should we be addressing multiple parts of the equation?
there's a type of relationship that a consumer has with the brand that is non-monetary, right? And it's to behold something beautiful or to, uh, it appeals to the idea that something exists. When that gets played out though, it almost feels like brands have to become not just so uh, faceted in the way that they talk to a consumer, but in, in reality, almost kind of unraveling of the brand and to become very specific and, and pull on each of the threads of what a brand's tapestry is made of. And I don't know, we haven't seen it play out just yet, but I wonder if that plurality of the brand's identity is something that is being forced upon the brand that nobody there really even wants. They're, 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 they're just trying to engage a consumer who has more choice than ever before. Like they're literally being ripped apart into having to be certain things in certain channels. And uh, that feels like it's a, a, a losing game to have to be punchy on Twitter and highbrow on Worth Avenue. Um, but I, Michael, I don't know what you might think about that. I think it's part of the natural evolution of what a brand needs to do to stay relevant, right? Like you can make an argument. I know it's not a one-to-one, but you know, 12 or 14 years ago, there were probably the same types of you know, uh, internal arm wrestling about digital transformation, right? Um, now with, with things like ESG, like is that another sea change that a brand must do to stay relevant? Otherwise they just will lose favor from even the most important consumers. Um, and, you know, when I read stats like 70% of the brands in, in, in the, the Fortune 500 um, since the 1930s have disappeared or there's, they've recycled. You have to take a look at like what did the brands that fell out of, of that or that just disappeared or got consolidated and got bought out by bigger competitors, what did they not do? Um, and what are the leading or lagging indicators of cultural change right now that we're seeing brands kind of try to address or take advantage of, right? And of course that will create some dissonance and some internal friction, but you're seeing it happen. And when, and when they happen in the right way, it's sort of like, it's applauded because it's what consumers want, um, especially younger, consum- younger consumers. But for the business oriented, it's sort of like, a, of course you're doing that. You might take a hit in the short term, but if the entire industry doesn't go in this certain direction, then there won't be much of an industry to talk about. Um, trying to think of a tactical example, like Burberry is a great example. I think they just announced in the past month that they're going to do a resale um, channel, or they're going to own their own resale. Now, that's in reaction to um, you know, retailers like The Real Real and all the secondary marketplaces online existing and maybe stealing share of gently used um, uh, recent vintage goods. Um, but it also says a lot about what they, where they think the future of their retail and their brand is going to be. And as a signal to their youngest of consumers who really think that, of course, it has to be in your DNA doesn't matter if you're a hundred plus year old brand or if you're like a six month D to C brand, if you don't have that, it's going to be like trying to be a brand now without an e-commerce offering. It's just, you're going to be missing out on so much opportunity. So I think that might be one way to think about it. It's not infrastructure, but it kind of is. It's a DNA thing. But I think it is infrastructure. I mean, we have examples and I think as people who are responsible for building and scaling brands and helping them make better choices, something that comes up a lot is what do we want to do that feels more internal? And what do we want to do that we want to talk about? And I think there are certain elements of decisions that get made that a brand doesn't 
want credit for or isn't something that they feel like wants to, they want to be part of their brand story. But an example of where those things come together recently is with American Eagle and what their team is calling their frenemy network. And they are actually leveraging their own supply chain capabilities to some of their competitors. That's and cool. the idea gets back to what we had spoken about earlier, which is not just sharing insights, but also creating efficiencies. So theoretically, one of the benefits of that is that each of the brands can do what they do best, which probably isn't logistics and has a lot more to do with brand building and marketing, supporting consumers and engaging with them, helping them perform out one of the many elements of their personalities. But separately, that is one way that the business can look at the infrastructure of being a company on top of a grid and think about that as infrastructure. You know, like what are the highways that they're building between their own businesses so that the entire thing can just be a fraction of a percent better mm -hmm. for everybody as they are creating and growing their business. And I thought it was such a funny and wonderfully um, like mediable way to call to talk about that as a frenemy network yeah, because man, it's I, super tongue-in-cheek. Lo I love that example too because if you put yourself in the shoes of a young consumer who might love the brand but not be you know necessarily be educated about the way that business is done in the back end especially with production logistics mm -hmm. you might react to that as oh that's interesting and funny and, and novel but also shouldn't that be the way that oh, it's sure. supposed to be? Mm -hmm. right. Like of course like use you, you know leverage excess capacity to rent it out to who you know, might be competitors yeah, like, might not but isn't that just better for everyone involved? Even from like an energy usage perspective, like oh, that sounds like it's better for the it's better for the planet without having to take a anti-capitalist stance about it. You know. And from a comms perspective what a smart way to get in front of what people might look at as a weakness right. in the business. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Those are conversations that have a lot more to do with the operations of a company than the marketing. But to be able to say, no, this is a value add for us and mm -hmm. it positions us as we start to become more of a data company, American Eagle, mm -hmm. we're actually going to be getting efficiencies from insights into how other companies run their business because that might be the exchange that they're making. There may be a, a an optimist's way of looking at some of this too, without having to take such a hard stand. I think there's an element of like, is this authentic or is this not? And then what's our purpose? If you kind of analogize what we're talking about to the Steven Pinker way of looking at things, which is you can look at some elements of today and say things have never been worse. You can look at some elements of today versus 50, 125 years ago and say things are dramatically better. And let's not let progress get in the way of, of um, accurately understanding what's going on. So. There are very many aspects of retail where 10, 15, 20 years ago, the approach to a lot of customers was, I'm going to make my quarter, right? You had companies like Chewy that created much better customer experiences, and you had businesses like PetSmart giving them to shareholders and buying back their own stock. Mm -hmm. and, and there's much less of that now. Customer centricity is much less radical and avant-garde. And there's actually a rush to get good at this because consumers want it. Now, like any gold rush, there's going to be a bunch of phony replicants that don't do a great job of it and sort of toxify things a bit reputationally. There's going to be a bunch of poor attempts at it. But the fact that lots of attempts are being made at it because the upside of it looks really high from the other side of that lens could be seen as a sign of progress. A little bit of a Pollyanna view of things, but at the same time, I think you, you don't want to completely throw out some of those elements. I think it's also leading retailers and brands to reassess what's called to their business, to Grace's point. Um, to use your word there, Mike, you know, I always refer to retailers as intensely parochial and dealing with them in terms of technology and what differentiators they 
derive from the technology. They don't want to talk about it because that's my secret source. But actually, um, if it's getting 0.1% extra efficiency out of your supply chain, um, and you can share that with other retailers in the American Eagle example, surely that, you know, it allows me to concentrate on something else. I don't really want to worry about where my containers are, which is what they're preoccupied with at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is always, I've always uh, observed this tension in, I want to own it all. I want to own the customer relationship end-to-end. I want to own the process end-to-end. And I think there's got to be a little bit of letting go in that sense if we're going to be, if if retailers and brands are authentically going to meet the challenges from an ESG and uh, um, um, uh, authenticity perspective, really. I do think it depends on the brands. Like uh, at a certain scale, all of a sudden, I think there's high importance that needs to go into connecting the COO to the CMO, if you will. At a certain level, if you don't have the discipline of running a supply chain and running you know, distribution networks, I think that's going to put you at a, at a disadvantage at being able to run a, an efficient business, but also being able to affect change and actually show your customers that you're making strides. Once you hand that off to someone else, you're fully at their whim. So, but it's deciding where the where the real differentiators lie. I think for me, promise to deliver is so important. Um, so that might mean you decide you don't want to, you know, give away your supply chain. To your point, absolutely. But at the same time, retailers are fighting fires on so many fronts. You have to stop prioritizing yeah. and there are people out there that are so much better at shifting goods around the planet than retailers at the end of the day so it's finding the right partners authenticity came up more than once in the last few minutes uh something that came out of our study was that there is actually like sort of a warring faction of people who believe that you 51 percent of our study said you have to fake it till you make it right so slim majority 49 percent said authenticity at all costs and I think that, that is, that's actually the undercurrent of tension that we have in the world, even in our own businesses, is that we have to project outwardly like we are doing everything because we've got to fake it till we make it. When, when it becomes operationally efficient for us to do it all, we'll really do it all? Maybe. Uh, but there's the other side of that, which says, I just want you to tell me the truth. Just tell me the truth. I have a pet theory that the pendulum swings far back the other way, that there is going to be some sort of discontentment coming on the horizon where people say, just give me a good product. I don't want to hear all the other stuff. Don't tell me how you're fixing the world. Don't tell me how you're changing life. Don't tell me. I don't, I don't care. But I'm just tired of buying stuff that looks pretty and tastes awful. I'm buying, uh, tired of, of not getting the thing that I thought I was getting. And my discontentment will lead me to let's just go after a brand that just tells you it's really freaking awesome. Like, that's really, that's what I want. I think that's a really good sort of devil, de- position of devil's advocacy that you've taken on board. But to, to Michael's point, those brands that have shaken out over the last 50 years made products that were all subform and no, no function, as it were. You know, I think if you make a product that doesn't taste good and you wrap it up and make it look amazing, you might sell a few units or 
plenty of units in the first few months, mm. years, but soon enough, people will be like, well, it's not as good as this other product. You know, consumers, and in that sense, the transparency that we've been talking about totally exists on the side of the consumer. The consumer's sharing all of their experiences all the time with whoever wants to listen. I think the retailers maybe and the brands should do should be listening more. Mm. I mean, some of the comments that have been made so far, I also feel like we should say, well, why don't the retailers just ask? You know, what are you here for? Do you want to be in and out? Do you, do you want a really curated, handheld experience? I think sometimes re, um, consumers might be, customers might be um, happy to volunteer what they're here for. Sometimes they'll go, you should know. <laughs> I'm, I, you're, I'm yeah. a loyalty customer. I, I live in your shop. Surely you know what I'm doing here. I'm here every Monday. So there's a, there's a balance to be struck there. It's, again, no easy answers, very, very complex. This episode is brought to you by Klaivu. Klaivu captures e-commerce shoppers' intent and then leverages AI to create personalized search and discovery experiences that allow your brand to go beyond keywords typed into the search box. Klaivu's end-to-end search and discovery solution is easy to configure, optimize, and maintain for all major shopping platforms in just hours. Klaivu's proprietary technology is driving traffic and conversion and loyalty for over 3,000 leading global brands. Check them out today at Klevu, that's K-L-E-V-U dot com. Visions is brought to you by Yakpo, an e-commerce marketing platform that helps online businesses win customers for life with interconnected solutions for reviews, SMS marketing, loyalty programs, and more. With Yakpo, brands like Steve Madden, Brooklinen, Quip, and Love Wellness are able to create innovative experiences that boost customer loyalty and repeat purchases. Join Yachtpo in keeping commerce on the cutting edge by downloading the Visions Report today. Visit yachtpo.com slash visions. That's Y-O-T-P-O dot com slash visions. It sounds like a lot of the examples we're bringing up happen to be physical products, but I'm really curious about the conversation as this pertains to software, digital products, the easiest thing to talk about there in terms of authenticity and transparency is how your data gets stored and shared and saved and if it does at all. But there has to be a bigger conversation. It's funny that as a consumer, my experience of people and how they spend their time with digital products is that they diligence them a little bit less, but classify them as generally bad much faster just to say, they have all my information so they're probably doing something bad with it, but I don't have as much, <laughs> I don't have as much um, in- in- intensity to scrutinize them. Yet we interact with those products way more often for the most part. I'm spending much more time on apps on my phone, whether it's Waze or MyFitnessPal, and I ask myself questions about that product much less than I do about what I use when I'm cooking or even the gym that I go to, which is both a physical product and a digital product. So diligencing those things as a consumer seems to be really funny because it doesn't happen as much. Well, I think that comes back to the convenience versus what I, what I, what I think are my values and what I say are my values right. because I don't trust Facebook, mm-hmm. but it's the dang easiest way to log into any other app. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I keep using it and I keep sharing my data all over the internet because it's convenient and that is, yeah, a, a case where what I say I believe and trust 
and my convenience-oriented behavior doesn't actually align. No, but I have great conversations about this exact thing with the design community when we talk about choices between Figma or Canva or how they want to actually interact with those types of products. I think it depends on how we actually use that piece of software in our daily lives and what for. Like you said, certain age groups and what the utility is for that product. But I think once we start to talk about products that support other brands, especially enterprise SaaS, there are more conversations there. They just aren't as fun to talk about, perhaps. It's much easier to argue on TikTok about why brands all start to look the same, yeah. consumer brands, than it is to talk about how are software products differentiated and how do we interact with them as an SMB. So I have a ton of excitement around UX design debates and what, authentic what authenticity and accessibility for people with different conditions look like. That's another part of it. It's just less tangible, quite honestly. One danger in all of this plurality of identity, addressing it, whether it be software or physical product, is uh, <clears throat> in getting back to the authenticity versus inauthenticity question. The, the more like plural we get in our identity, the more chance we have at looking inauthentic. Like if you look back at Crocs and what they did before the turnarounds, they were like, trying to build the Crocs ballet flats. And they're like, yeah, we're going to be all shoes to all people. <laughs> like that created this real like massive dissonance in, in the market. And like people were like, no, I don't want Crocs ballet flats. <laughs> like, um, at least then, maybe now it'll work. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, but uh, I think the, 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 again, like I think software is a really good example of this actually we technically have the ability to make software like become more unique. It's a little easier to address specific segments or, or markets um, with pixels. Um, but the problem with, uh, I think the problem with this is if we pixelate our businesses <laughs> uh, and, and uh, are, are we, uh, is the net effect that we look like we are actually, we don't have an identity as a business. Um, and I think that's a, that's a huge danger. I think that's what got Crocs before they turn around. No. Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many different factors that we could actually tease out. I, I think let's follow the software thread because I think it's fascinating, actually, Grace. Um, I think there are consumer dynamics at play in software choices, um, especially as the more people that are buying like enterprise SaaS type software uh, are actually more single operator or small team operators themselves, they have they express more consumer dynamics in the way that they make choices. Mm -hmm. I think most people honestly choose software because they say, I want to be like that person who has that thing. What is your stack? And in fact, a good portion of my own little Twitter bubble, which I know is its own fil filter bubble, but a good amount of engagement comes from the what 10 apps are you using on Shopify? And because everybody wants the not only the fastest way to uh, emulate success in the tools on which they built, but also like you don't want to be the one oddball in your, in your industry who's running the ancient software. Uh, you kind of want, like yeah. I, there's people, the people that are buying that are thinking about a bunch of things. One of them is 
my future upward mobility and career path. I don't want to be the guy who sat on Magento for 10 years. So I need to choose the thing that's, that's next relevance. And so those are things that I think we don't consider enough. We look at feature and functionality in UX or whatever the, the hot new AI, ML you know, capability is. We're not considering at all about the network dynamic that ha- gives that kind of pressure on the, the, the choices we make as business operators. It's also a, a reflection of, of who's acquiring or buying those licenses, right? So what, what, when, when I was freelancing heavily over the past couple of years, um, I so happened to work for a handful of agencies or companies that um, used a certain uh, video conference platform. Let's, let's say Microsoft Teams, whatever. Um, and I found myself having to apologize to people that I was sending invites to because of the perception in the marketplace that it was an inferior product to Zoom or, or, or Google or whatever else. Um, and that directly, I, I, I would have to say that because it would offset something that would be obvious in the first 20 seconds of the interaction in that this is an unfamiliar login. It's probably less friendly and less, you know, less familiar. Therefore, it's making for the beginning of this conversation to be a little less comfortable than it should be, right? Um, I think you can zoom into that and apply it to a, to, to a lot of things as well. Your stack is a reflection of the values that, or maybe that's too heavy-handed to say, but the, the stack is a reflection of, especially if you're if you're if you're, run, uh, if you're a small operation or if you run an SMB, like it directly affects. You can argue the quality of life of your employees. Completely. And then we see some of those software providers themselves becoming media operations where they spotlight their own clients. So it really is this virtuous cycle. And I only use virtuous to mean that it continues to happen. I don't know that it's always the best thing for everybody. But that means that software, which increasingly is easier to produce, you have Mm -hmm. people who operate. Honestly, I wish all of my CPG clients operated more on like the agile method and, and focused a little bit more on their product like engineers and iterated rather than committed to one vision unfailingly. But that is really true that it is a, such a signaling device to say, yeah. especially when you are raising money or you are trying to explain to investors how your business is going to continue to grow, a piece of software can almost make or break um, what might be a tiny percentage point of a margin. I, I've talked to a small, very small handful, but um, interesting case studies of Web3, very young Web3 engineers who have decided to work for one startup versus another based on their day-to-day like workflow stack. And when you ask, like, why are you just so familiar with this tool and not that tool that, you know, it's just a familiarity thing? No, it's like, no, it's, it means that this company doesn't care about what their employees go through day-to-day versus yeah. this company who has really, you know, they've even explained, like, why they use this as messaging and this as project management. And it's, like, it's all to the tune of, like, making your life as efficient and easy and, like, low load as possible because we want you to lock in and do good work. And I'm, like, you know what? I think that's been, like, a truism for my entire career. And I've worked mostly at, like, big box enterprise, big conglomerates. And the stack that you would have to deal with would always be something that you complained about, but you felt like you had no agency mm-hmm. to actually change. Like, oh, man, I can't believe I have to deal with my email through this. But, like, I'm not going to go to someone upstairs and complain about that because I'm just an employee. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't affect your productivity and your quality of work life. That's why sites like 1-800-D2C exist, which is just basically a glass door for pieces of software that operators use to build their companies. I think also you just, listening to the discussion, I just think that 
it's, it's a well-worn phrase, being a brand with a purpose, but I, what I'm seeing happen actually is that the relevance of that is, is starting to permeate to every part of your business. Yep. It's not just greenwashing, marketing. It has to be from the moment I start product development and innovation, who am I hiring to do that? What are the tools I'm giving them to do that? That's all a reflection of who I want to be seen as from a brand perspective. And yeah, you can't, you can't afford sort of, from an authenticity perspective, you can't afford to sort of fake it to, because personally on that point, I would say, if you're faking it till you make it, there's always the chance that you could get found out. Whereas at least if you're being authentic, <laughs> doesn't mean I did, you know, because your respondents are perfectly entitled to their opinion, but I would rather to be, rather be completely authentic and make sure that that goes, through, runs through every part, every vestige of my company from the DNA right through to the, to the advertising. I mean, um, look at any investor update of an early piece of software company, whether it's a notion or an email, you're, probably getting some instance of building in public, even if it's performative, but it's a definite part of building your brand as an entrepreneur. And I would love to hear anyone take the the bear case on building in public because I don't like it, but <laughs> go ahead. That's exactly Well, it's not so much that I want to have a bear case on building in public, but I, what I do, what I do want to say is we talked about transparency. Transparency leads to the Hawthorne effect, which we've talked about uh, in the report, uh, which is people's behavior changes when they know or think that they're being watched. Mm-hmm. And so, like you said, the word performative, you just like when you said that, I was like, yes, exactly. I think this is giving rise to actually a lot of insincerity and actually sort of almost the celebration of insincerity as like a mode of operating. <laughs> Um, which I'm not saying is good, but I do think that it's happening. And, and, and so, like, I think there's a lot of employees, actually, I think back to your original example, Michael, of, like, you, you just kept using that email. You didn't complain about it. You didn't say anything about it. You just kept using that, that email provider because you kind of just had to. And, like, instead of having a boss, we have Twitter. <laughs> which is the whole world is now our boss. Oh, but Twitter is not the world. The right? world. That's Twitter's the not problem. the world, yes. <laughs> That's actually the problem. Yes, that is. No. The, there's a public boss. Yeah. No, Twitter's not pandemic, even the internet. Well, Twitter's Twitter not even Twitter. Twitter. Yes. That's a great right. resignation. But, but is, you know, what I'm saying is... You have to be, position yourself as an employer of choice. You've got to be yeah. more mindful of these kinds mm. of things because they will just vote with their feet. Mm-hmm. And that's... I actually took the opposite interpretation of what you were saying when mm-hmm. you were, I, I was expecting you to go a different way when you talked yeah. about the Hoffman yeah. effect and that like when I think about myself as an employer and again, not a very, very large one by any extreme, but my biggest fear is that anyone in our company, whether it's a CX rep handling to uh, uh, handling a ticket, with one of our customers yeah. or one of our uh, more technical folks dealing with a particular ticket in a project, regardless of the level in the company that someone's working at, yeah. the second that just becomes a ticket, I think there's a 50% chance they're gone within two or three weeks. That, that's the way I approach the work every day. And so the idea of I'm, I, I absolutely feel like I'm being watched leading a company yes. all the time. Mm-hmm. And if I can't make promises that I can keep every day or Friday emails to the staff 52 times a year, yeah. if those ring a little hollow, and it's not like someone's going to jump in the email and say you're wrong, mm-hmm. they'll just fail to be compelled and quit. Mm-hmm. 
So you need to keep up with that bogey all the time mm-hmm. and make promises you can keep 52 times a year when you communicate everybody on those cadences or something like that. And so mm-hmm. I, I like that forcing mechanism. Mm-hmm. Like I think that really drives you to make meaningful yeah. promises and keep them 50 times a year. Mm-hmm. And build that into the fabric of yourself as a leader. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. so often I'll see companies have lowered morale and no one can really understand why. Mm-hmm. But chances are it has to do with lack of consistency or overpromise from the side of leadership and chipping away at your own credibility over time doesn't really serve you. So you could adopt a truism in, I guess, certainly in the consulting business, but almost anywhere under promise and just over deliver as it pertains to your own team so that you can invest in them and let them know that I am absolutely committed to this being a good experience, not just for our investors or other people who are funding the business or our customers, but also the people who are building this thing and starting small and being very, um, being sort of economical with the promises that you're making seems to be a more efficient path if I'm understanding your take on it. If we're successful, I'll tell you what actually works. But I I, I think um, I've been on the wrong side of that too. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I've been chased by the demon of what's the purpose clearly enough? Why aren't we promising something bigger? Like it needs to be big enough that it's worth spending your time with. Folks that care about the purpose of a business where they want to work, customers that care about who they want to spend their dollars with, it, it, you, you can't sandbag those things. And so it's a very fine line between under promise and then fail to compel versus pitch the best pitch you can come up with right now in this room and fail to think through whether you can do that the next 52 weeks of the year. Mm. And I think the answer is if you do it right most of the time, ideally you have folks who will forgive you the 5% of the time you get it wrong. But it's, it's, it's a tough one. There's the element of productivity as well. I think to the point about being watched, what we, what I've heard a lot of business leaders, B2C company leaders talk about is not watching, not judging their employees on um, whether they're coming into work. If, you, if, we, if you're not here, you're not working. It's the outcomes, measuring the outcomes in that sense. So to your point, you make the promise, but you have to deliver it on 52 weeks a year. And... Uh, you're measured on the outcome of that. If you if you miss one, then obviously you failed on that outcome, but also it's the quality of what you're putting out there as well. So I think people would, at the end of the year, take a step back and go, well, how productive has Mike been? Oh, well, he's kept his promise and it's he's knocked it out of the park yeah. every time. It's it's the outcomes nowadays. I think that's much, much more important. And you've got to be really clear about what they, what they are from the point of view of promising your promise. I think that can cause some... some challenges though as well. If we focus 100% on outcomes, outcomes are almost always KPI based. KPIs are almost always imperfect. And then they end up driving behavior that is to hit KPIs as opposed to hiring good people to do good work and understanding that the the KPI isn't always the end all to be all. Um, And so I do think, again, I think this gets back to a certain level of like performative action. If we're 100% focused on outcomes, then we are going to do things that we don't necessarily, if, if you're a, a certain kind of employee, you're going to go try to hit those outcomes as opposed to potentially doing things that are actually better for the business or better for the environment or whatever it is. Um, so I, th- 
if we're 100% outcome focused, um, I think that again, like that, I think that leads to insincerity. The new KPI is vibes. Like <laughs> yeah. we just let's just we're just here for the vibes, <laughs> right? Like that's really what it is. What about satisfaction levels? I would prefer it if sure. someone said, "Have you hit your targets? And did you enjoy doing so? You know, what did you have to fudge? What did what should we learn from the experience of?" reaching or missing that KPI rather than it being, I suppose, an, an absolute hit or miss the KPI. You just, you, you need to tease out the nuance of why you got the result you got. So I agree with you. It shouldn't be all outcome-based, but there doesn't seem to be room to measure or nobody seems to have worked out how to measure the softer side of business in that sense, have they? But that's why I like the outcomes approach. Like if you're an employer, the outcomes of winning the vibes, right, is like, you have great people you'd be proud to associate yes. yourself with. Like when I think about having young kids, like do I have people around me I'd be proud to see my kids become like those people? And are they doing great work? Like that's an outcome thing. I can say the vibes are great and the people I'm talking to like things, but if, if you're not earning their buy-in every day, that's a hard empirical outcome of do you have the team you need to accomplish what you're promising to your customers? And do they seem like, are they actually showing up every day and being bought into things as owners? Like. I you're, love the outcome approach. You're also one of the most sincere, empathetic people that I know. <laughs> like, uh, I hope not. I mean, I, yes. I think, yeah. like, I, I, no, seriously, I, I don't yeah. think that should be an exceptional standard for people. I think we all have to be servant leaders in that regard. Mm-hmm. People are really selective with their options. And so you just have to I love earn that it. as an outcome, though. I love that. I think that's a fantastic way to think about it. Brands, brands need to be reminded that their staff are their best brand advocates and they need to make sure their staff are happy. I suppose it starts at home in that sense, doesn't it, really? But I think we're seeing some of that happen from some pretty big leaders in the space. Neiman Marcus is a great example of a company that is encouraging, encouraging, begging its employees to get on TikTok and talk about what it's like to work there from from the floor department, from the shoe department, rather, when they're on the floor working, to actually walk around the floor, talk about the products, not to say here's what's new in stock, but just to simply give some life to a company that may be a little bit faceless or maybe maligned in certain regard. But that's a legacy company. And for someone internally or a group of people internally to be advocating for that the same way Tiffany is doing the same thing, I'm encouraged by that because, of course, there is still a win for the business if that drives people to the store or drives people to make purchases or helps acquire customers who may be saving and saving and saving to buy something at Neiman who might not otherwise, it is still, to me, a step in the right direction or at least advances the conversation around what it can be to treat your team as really strong ambassadors. I worked for a company about a decade ago, right? I I was there when we started Instagram. And I wasn't allowed to put my company's name in my own Instagram bio because the fear was great talent gets poached. I am hoping that we have completely come 180 and now we are understanding that people are the best recommended and recommending engine, not just for new customers, but also for better talent. a great example of um, 
an English fashion brand called Jules, and I interviewed their head of HR about um, about three, four months ago. Um, and they had an intranet for their HR system for training. Um, it was impenetrable. It's hard to search. Um, people were told, go and read this document. There was no way of checking that they'd read that document. So they put in a new learning management system and then the pandemic hit. And it was just good timing in that sense that they suddenly had this central uh, web, do, web, web 2.0 kind of quite modern mobile responsive system that they could reach out to their employees with. Um, and what they found was that the employees really started to use it to uh, create the community amongst themselves. Um, and the, the employer, Jules themselves, gave the employees license to do things other than that was core to the learning management system. So they started to share hobbies, lockdown tips, and it became a self-sustaining thing that they ended up, to your point, Grace, putting out on social media, which added to their, it reinforced their own culture internally, but added to their sense of brand purpose, what they stood for. Um, they, they actually discovered that they had a couple of like budding stars amongst them, a, a lady that would teach people how to gift wrap. And her, her lessons got, went viral within the company and then yeah. they put them out there and they went viral on Instagram. You know, you got to, I think you've got to be willing to give people the tools mm. and let them, to, to, to Mike's point, you know, let them use them to the point where they, they can affect their own levels of satisfaction. This is sort of like a, the old saying, people don't buy from companies, they buy from other people. Mm. And it's sort of democratised, like it, it's bringing face, a face, not just one face, but individual faces to a brand and bringing that brand to life um, in, in a similar way that we've seen influencers drive sales and be the be the face of a brand and that's why influencer marketing has been so successful is because there is a face there is someone that I trust there is someone who I want to be like someone who I want to look like so yeah it, great job for those companies to actually turn their employees into in influencers in a way I think that's such a good it's great that we've had this organic conversation where I've maybe Tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if you guys agree with me. I've come up with what I would think is an authentic example, whereas nowadays, I don't know, maybe the tide is turning, but in my opinion, celebrity influencing is faking till you make it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There is a nuance between the two. They kind of have the same effect. And if you love celebrity advertising and marketing, then that's for you. That's brilliant. But there's a, there's a distinction. There's a small nuance there between the two, I think. That's a really good way of drawing it out. Circling something here which we circle a lot at Future Commerce, which is the difference between the way things should be if we all operated the way that we wanted to versus the way things are and the way things are trending. Um, and, you know, it's funny, we, we talk about, and, and I think, Mike, you, you nailed something after the last session. You're like, one of the dangers of talking about what makes people happy, and then here we are as brands, like, sitting around, like, oh, yeah, we're to make people happy by selling them more stuff. <laughs> we're going to influence change in the world through commerce, through capitalism. You know, the danger of all of this is like a lot of these thought processes circulate in our thought leadership communities, a lot of these ideas. And then we see the largest rise in depression from year to year that we know of. <laughs> yeah. 
they have more and feel less maybe. And that's where I do find that like one danger is us putting ourselves in a position of having answers. Inherently, like I don't want this platform to be about that. I want to ask questions. And I don't know that all questions have answers. I think that some people try to solve them in interesting ways and some people have their own perspective. Maybe it is KPIs, maybe it is vibes. There's no one universal truth when it comes to solving any given problem in this world that we're all living in. I do think that when we're just thinking about starting a conversation in our industry that's way above the tactical conversion rate optimization, AOV, and channel arbitrage, we need to, we need to elevate the conversation to, be, uh, to think more about the personhood of the person on the other side of that transaction who actually has a lot of uh, conflicting uh, behaviors that are giving us mixed signals and causing us to try to interpret it in sometimes a really difficult and brand-defining way and potentially not serve the end goal that we've all set out to achieve. And we'll keep asking the questions. The Visions Podcast is brought to you by Future Commerce. You can find more episodes of this podcast and all Future Commerce properties at futurecommerce.fm. Download our 100-page companion guide on cultural and consumer trends by visiting visions.report. That's visions.report.